Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Katherine Hayhoe and Dr. Alan Townsend, two scientists featured in a film series entitled Let Science Speak. I, too, am interviewed for this short-form film series aimed at building a groundswell of bipartisan support for scientists on the front lines of solving our planet's gravest challenges. Let Science Speak highlights not only what is at risk for our lives, our country, and our planet when science is under attack, but what that means for humans behind the research and the people behind the facts. And I am joined by my colleague, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech University. Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dr. Hayhoe is one of the most prominent and well-respected climate communicators in the country, and she was one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. And you were involved in Let Science Speak. Why did you feel that it was so important to be involved in this effort, Catherine? I felt that this was important because it was a chance to show people not just why science matters, but who we are as scientists. So often we are stereotyped as, you know, the emotionless robots in the white coats hiding in their labs in the ivory tower. And the reality is, is that we are humans. We are parents. We are spouses. We are people of faith. We are people who care passionately about others and about the places where we live. And this passion that we have for everything it means to be human is what carries us through in our science as well. And that is why we care so much about the issue of climate change, not just because it's a science issue, but because it affects real people today. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing uh task ahead of us and a challenge ahead of us. And Let Science Speak is it, this short form film series really takes some of the top scientists at the forefront. I'm, I'm involved, uh, as are you, Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Dr. Don Wright, uh, Dr. Townsend. And I mean, this, this is a significant effort. I mean, it rolled out on September 20th that uh, has a, a score composed by Fallout Boy frontman Patrick Stump, a trailer that's going to be released by Rolling Stone. Um, It's just exciting. And so it's important that people like you uh, who are on the forefront of this engage. Uh, What do you find is your greatest challenge as a scientist when communicating this particular topic, climate change, to the public? And I know that's an unfair question because there are many challenges, but what are some of the ones that you'd bubble up to the forefront? Well, so often as scientists, we think the problem is that people don't know enough information because that's the way you and I operate. If if we don't know something, we look for more information to inform our opinion. But what I've gradually realized through thousands of conversations with people across the U.S. and beyond is that the two main problems we confront are this. First of all, the idea that climate change doesn't really matter to me. It might matter to future generations. It might matter to people living in developing countries. It might matter to the polar bear, but it doesn't matter to me right here in the place where I live. And the second greatest challenge is the idea that 
I don't like the solutions. The solutions that I hear about are punitive solutions. It's about the government taking away my personal liberty, setting my thermostat, telling me what kind of car or truck I can or can't drive, destroying the economy, you know, going back to the Stone Age. We have this idea that the impacts don't matter and the solutions are terrible. Whereas in reality, it's exactly the opposite. This, the impacts are affecting us right here today through amplifying many extreme weather events like we just saw recently with Hurricane Florence. And the solutions are also here today, and many of them are incredible. Clean energy from the sun and the wind and the tides that supply here in Texas alone more than 25,000 jobs investing in local economies. There are solutions people can get on board with, but for you and I as scientists, that's not often our own area of expertise. And so it's challenging to learn about what people really want to know and to be able to provide those resources to people. Yeah, and you talked about, uh, as we're taping this, uh, we're dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Florence, and you talk about kitchen table issues. I just tweeted uh, an article about 1.2 million chickens that were killed or drowned in Hurricane Florence. You talk about a kitchen table issue, literally. uh, This is likely to mean that people will see uh, higher prices for poultry and poultry products, eggs. So uh, it, it really is important to try to make these kitchen table times. We love polar bears, but we Certainly, these are about sort of everyday kitchen table issues of the food we buy, the kinds of public health our kids face, the challenges with new diseases, even national security. Um, You also have a a really interesting and special angle on it and something that you and I have in common. Uh, It's regarding your faith. Talk a little bit about, uh, well, what I want to do first is before we talk about your faith as it relates to climate change, I want to play a clip from, uh, uh, from the effort and 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 let you react to it. So we're going to play the clip now. For me as a Christian, I believe that God created this amazing world that we live in. It's not where you sit for an hour on Sunday. I believe that we are called to be responsible for this planet and every living thing that lives on it. That we are called to love and to care for others. So rather than science and faith being in conflict on this, I think they actually complement each other. Yeah, that was the clip there. And I mean, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Why is this so important to you to bring bring your faith perspective into the discussion? Well, when I first moved to Texas, I started to get all kinds of invitations to speak to community groups, the League of Women Voters, the local seniors home about a changing climate. And so as scientists, you know, to us, it's self-evident why this is important. It's real, it's us, it's serious, and we need solutions now. So I would go to these groups and I would talk science, 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 as many of us do and would. And then I would get all of these questions. And most of the questions weren't about science. The questions were about, well, why should I care? Because they just assumed that I was, you know, the stereotypical scientist, liberal, atheist, tree hugging, probably. And that they were very different. And so they did not see the connection to their values. And that made me realize that to me, the connections seemed very obvious to my values. But if I wasn't going to share that with anybody, they couldn't read my mind. And so I still remember the first time I got invited to speak to a faith group. It was Second Baptist Church. You know, Second Baptist can always go out in a 
a limb a little further than First Baptist. So, <laughs> so Second Baptist was willing to have the climate scientist in. And that was the moment when I realized if I'm really going to connect this issue to people's values, I have to open my own heart and share with them why I care too. And for me, it has everything to do with my faith. The idea that we are responsible for this incredible planet that we live on. And even more importantly, the idea that we are created to love and to care for others who are less fortunate than us. So being able to share that with people, it was just incredible. It just opened their hearts as well to the fact that you don't need a whole new set of values to care about a changing climate. If if we are people of faith, if we are parents, if we care about the economy, if we care about national security, as you said, 99.9% of us, we already have all the values we need to care about a changing climate. We just have to connect the dots. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There's no certainly no inconsistencies between being good stewards of the earth and having dominion over our only planet that we can live on right now. Um, you know, I, as David Titley, a colleague of both of ours, often says, it's not about whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's not whether you're Protestant or Catholic. You know, the ice just melts and, and all of the implications that that has and everything else that we've talked about with climate change Um touch people's lives. And so I, I really appreciate your values-based approach. Um, generally, what is your reaction? What are the reactions to your approach? Well, whenever I talk to a person or a group, I always try to start with our shared values. And those aren't always faith. So I do a lot of work with water managers and with farmers and producers. And so when I'm talking to water managers, I start by talking about flood and drought and all of the extremes that we've already endured in this part of the world. When I'm talking to farmers and producers, they're very in tune with natural cycles. So we start by talking about natural climate variability and El Nino. Um, when we're talking to people who have have experienced really extreme events like um, floods or hurricanes, we can start by talking about all the impacts that they've experienced from that and then connect the dots to how climate change is intensifying or amplifying them. I think finding that personal connection is really the most important place to start with. And if we can't find a genuine personal connection with a person or with people that we're talking to, first of all, that means that maybe we haven't had, we haven't spent the time to get to know them. And if we've spent the time to get to know them and we still can't find the connection, then maybe we're not the right person to have that conversation with them, but somebody else is. We're talking with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. She's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's also the host of the PBS series Global Weirding, uh, which provides state-of-the-art information to a broad range of uh, listeners and viewers. What do you see that scares you the most about what's happening with our climate system right now and or our weather? The most concerning thing to me as a climate scientist is the potential for surprise. As far back as we can go in the history of this planet, we have never seen it pushed this far this fast. Climate has absolutely changed in the past, and there have been times of extreme or abrupt climate change in the past due to natural causes. But the most extreme change that we can see um, going back more than 50 million years is a time when carbon emissions into the atmosphere from the ocean, which were driving the rapid change, were one-tenth what they are today. So we don't have a perfect analog for the exact conditions that are happening today. We can certainly make very educated guesses based on physics and chemistry and biology, and we have a good idea of what the changes are going to be short term. 
But over the long term, the potential for dangerous surprises increases. And as I've said before, it's, it's not just the polar bear that's at risk here. It's, the, it's human civilization because our society is built on the assumption of a stable climate. Two thirds of the world's biggest cities are within just a few feet of sea level. All of our agricultural land is parceled out based on the water resources we've had over the past century and what type of crops you can grow where and when and how. All of that is changing and we are not prepared. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech University, one of the most influential voices in climate science and science in general. Uh, She and I are both a part of a a, a new film series called Let Science Speak. And, you know, I've often said that that if we as scientists are are not out speaking in public spheres to policymakers, People with agendas and other sort of um, misinformation are happy to fill that void that we are as scientists are not filling. So I think it's I I applaud Dr. Hayhoe for her work, not only as a a publishing scientist. She has over 50 50 peer reviewed publications in the key literature. And and so that tells you that she knows what she's doing. But she's taken upon the mantle to go out uh, beyond the ivory tower. And I think that's important. Do you think people, Catherine, are starting to get the point. I mean, and I want to talk a bit later about the malice and the evil rhetoric and threats, but do you think people are starting to get it or, 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 or is this still an uphill battle? People absolutely are starting to get it. I follow the public opinion polls very closely and there is no doubt that the majority of people in the United States agree that climate is changing and the majority even agree that humans are responsible. Why is that? It's because over the last 10 years or so, we have started to see the impacts in the places where we live. You know, back 15, 20 years, if you really wanted to witness firsthand the obvious impacts of climate change, you would have to go up to Alaska or to a place where we see rapid and obvious changes happening, glaciers melting, permafrost thawing. But today we are starting to experience it in the places where I live. I live in Lubbock, Texas, which is the second most conservative city in the country, apparently after Provo, Utah. And even here, the most hardcore farmers and producers and ranchers who are all about natural variability and, you know, how humans can't affect something as big as our planet, even they are starting to say this this natural whiplash effect from wet to dry to flood to drought that we've always seen, it's getting amplified. It's getting weird. Something is different. Something is changing. It's getting harder and harder to ignore the evidence of our own eyes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, I'm sure you get this quite a bit that there used to be this notion that and we still get it that, oh, climate always changes nat- naturally or oh, we always had hurricanes, Dr. Shepard. Um, but I think your point is key that, yeah, there's a natural variability in our climate system, but humans are uh, well, human activities are amplifying it. You know, I, the, my retort to that typically is, well, grass grows naturally, but when you fertilize the soil, it grows differently. So there's nothing to suggest that it's either or it, 
it's and. It's the natural variability and the human influence is on top of it. Which brings me to an, an, an interesting sort of sort of inflection point in discussion. We as scientists that speak on this, we deal with people that are skeptical, non-believing, um, even, you know, critics of what we do. First of all, why do you think there's this faction? It's not a large faction. In fact, the uh, Six America study suggests that it's around 9 to 10%, but they're very loud. They're the ones attacking us on Twitter or calling us names. Why do you think that faction exists and how do you deal with them? That is a question that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Whenever anyone reacts with such a strong emotion, you know that they're not reacting to scientific facts that you're presenting because most people really don't have a problem with thermodynamics or nonlinear fluid dynamics. (laughs) Yes. But something about what you're saying presents a threat to them. And what I have noticed through listening to people and through having thousands of conversations, and you've probably had the same too, is that when people bring up the issue of climate isn't changing, it's just a hoax, you scientists are making it up to get government research money. Whenever they say these things, it is almost immediately followed with, because I don't want the government to take away my personal liberty or use this as an excuse to control me or destroy the economy. It is solution aversion because they perceive the solutions to be much higher risk than the actual impacts. Not only that, but there's an identity component to it too. For many of these people, which again, as you say, are a very small group, but they're very loud, especially on social media and in the comments section online. For these people, part of their identity is rejecting a whole host of things that the solutions to climate change imply. So for these people who I think dismissive is a good term for them because they will dismiss any piece of evidence you present them with, for them, asking them to change their mind on climate change, which they absolutely firmly believe to be some type of socialist communist hoax designed to personally take away their own liberties, trying to ask them to change their mind on it is like asking them to, you know, almost remove a body part. It is so ingrained as part of their identity that when you say climate is changing, they interpret that as a personal threat. I, I want to play another clip. Let's play a clip here and then we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you about that clip. It's scary to get hate mail, to get threats, to get people saying, I know where you live and I'm watching you. Or to say, I wish you were dead. I wish your son could see your head in a basket under the guillotine. Well over half of that hate mail comes from people who identify as Christians, people who share my faith. Yeah, that's an interesting clip there from, I believe that's from the Let Science Speak series. It just illustrates some of what you're talking about. Scientists really aren't supposed to be attacked, but we are. As you say, they they challenge our motives. But, you know, it's interesting. I have two young kids and I say, look, I hope you're absolutely right. I hope this is a hoax. Because if it's not a hoax and I'm, I'm right, my kids suffer. Uh, so I've never really understood this notion that somehow we have something to gain from this. Uh, and, and one of the things that I've noticed, and I know you've noticed that we've talked about this in the past, uh, a lot of these attacks are coming uh, hard and fast. They're coming from people with certain belief systems. And they particularly have been harsh towards um, you as a woman, me as a minority. What are your thoughts there? Mm-hmm. I think that 
at its root, this is coming from a place of fear. It's fear that the world is changing too fast and that they stand to lose from those changes. And so it's connected to issues of racism and civil rights. It's connected to issues of gender equity. And it's absolutely connected to issues of we need to get our energy from different ways in the future than we did in the past. It's the whole insecurity of the world is changing faster than I'm comfortable with. And I am really scared of those changes and what they mean for me. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. So let's talk about sort of Let Science Speak. Uh, it's it's out there. By the time this airs, Let Science Speak is out there. You can go go view it, uh, consume it. Uh, it's really, really well done production. What did you, what do you hope people take away from Let Science Speak, at least your clip? I, I, I know I can talk about the fact that I hope people see the human side of me as a scientist, as opposed to just some scientist that's talking to the establishment. I think that's one of the things that I really wanted to come out of my piece. What, what do you hope people get from your piece when they watch Dr. Catherine Hayhoe and Let Science Speak? Well, I hope people will watch all of them because they're really amazing. And I think they show how we have such diverse voices and such diverse sets of values Yet we're all concerned about this issue of climate change because at its foundation, at its core, it's a human issue. So what I love most about Let Science Speak is the fact that it does put a human face on us as scientists as well as on the problem. It shows how we ourselves connect the dots between our most deeply held values and the reason why we're concerned about a changing climate. And by doing so, I am hoping that we can model to others how they too can connect the dots between the, their own values that they already have and hold dear and the reason why that makes them the perfect person to care about a changing climate. But before we before I let you go, I want to ask you one more question. But again, Let Science Speak features Dr. John Foley, Dr. Marshall Shepard, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, Dr. Jacqueline Gill, Dr. Don Wright, and Dr. Alan Townsend. So make sure you uh, check out Let Science Speak. Uh, in this last few moments that we have, Catherine, where do we go from here? I mean, I mean, there, and that's again, that's a challenging question. On its, where do we go from here with the science? Um, I want to put, want you to put your science hat on for a second. So, wh where, where are the pressing questions in your mind going forward on the science, and then on communicating the science? The most important thing we need to do is wean ourselves off carbon as soon as possible. But how can we do that? There's no one silver bullet. So when people say, well, what can I do personally? And people are often expecting us to say, you know, recycle and <laughs> change your light bulbs. The most important thing that I have become increasingly convinced that we need to do, and this is how Let Science Speak really helps, is just talk about this issue because studies have shown that 75% of people in the United States, three quarters of all people in the U.S., don't even hear somebody else talk about climate change more than once or twice a year. And if we don't hear anybody else talk about it, let alone talk about it ourselves, then why on earth would we think it's important? Why would we vote for political candidates who support climate action? And I think it's important to note that there are libertarians who have ideas on climate action. There are free market people. There are bipartisan solutions. There's a whole range of solutions on climate change. Why would we feel that we ourselves should step on the carbon scale and measure our family's personal carbon footprint and take steps to reduce it if we don't think this is an important issue? It all starts with talking about climate. And that is where this series, I think, is so helpful because give it a watch, look at a few of the videos, find what interests you and share that with someone else. 
There's one more thing that you said that I did want to follow up with you on, because I have people that come up to me. They know that I work in this area and and they see the fact that our country uh, withdrew from the Paris Agreement. They see some of the rhetoric. They see some of the things that have been going on with the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA. And they say, I I just feel hopeless about this. I feel helpless about this. Um, Do you feel that this sort of attack on climate science and science in general um, should put us in a funk? Or is there any optimism that you see even in this era that we're in right now? Well, to discourage us is exactly the intent of these attacks. And so if we let it discourage us long term, it's hard not to let it discourage us short term. But if we let it continue to discourage us, that means that they've actually won. So hope is not a passive emotion. To find hope, we can't just sit here and wait for it to come to us. We have to go out and find it. And that's why I deliberately look for hopeful stories. I share those hopeful stories on my Facebook account at least one a week, if not more. And I specifically reach out to and engage with people and organizations who are acting in positive ways because that is where we find our hope. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Now, one one last thing, Catherine, where can people that really want to follow you and sort of understand your work, where, where are some of the places that they can follow you, follow you on social media? Sure. So my website is just my name, CatherineHayhoe.com. And people can also find me on Twitter, on Facebook, and even on Instagram if they want to see what a scientist's life looks like in pictures. Yeah, no, and I I, I agree. Uh, I think that's where we'll end it. I want to thank you for joining us, Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, We will have Dr. Alan Townsend coming up after the break. Thank you again for joining us, Catherine. Such a pleasure. Thank you. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I am now joined by Dr. Alan Townsend, who also participated in Let Science Speak. Uh, uh, Alan Townsend's actually the Colorado College Provost and Professor of Environmental Sciences, and he was the director of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research and a professor at the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Colorado Boulder before joining Colorado College. Uh, he is a, a very well-known colleague. He has a bachelor's in biology from Amherst College and a PhD in biological sciences, and he's a very strong leader. But more importantly, I thought your story in Let Science Speak was one of the most compelling stories of the series. Um, First of all, how did you get involved in Let Science Speak? Well, hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, it first happened um, about a year and a half ago when Christine Arena, who, as you know, is the producer and and John Foley in it as well, uh, they gave me a call and just told me a little bit about the project and, and asked if, if I would be willing to tell that story because they, they knew it was a tough one to tell. So it, it started from there. And let's just go right into the story. If you haven't viewed or listened to uh, the Let Science Speak series, they are now live on letsciencespeak.com. You can follow them on Twitter 
Let's Sci, S-C-I, Speak, and Instagram as well. Let's just talk about it because the, really the essence of your story is this. Uh, you talk about that this is not about an agenda. This is not about uh, ideology. For you, this is very personal because science literally may have saved your daughter's life. Is that, is that, tell us about that and why you uh, wanted to tell that story. Yeah, that's correct. And so, um, like the rest of us in the film, I'm an environmental scientist, and it's always been personal to me in the sense that I, I chose to go into that field not only because I found it fascinating, but because I found it important to people, important to our future. Uh, but things really shifted a bit for me to make it even more deeply personal in my appreciation and lens on science when my daughter was diagnosed with a rare brain tumor um, almost five years ago now. And she, um, she was four, she was a tiny little kid and you know, it's one of these things that you never expect in life and suddenly it's everything. And we went from that diagnosis to her having to have a nearly 12 hour surgery to remove part of that tumor and, and on from there. And that was, uh, that was the beginning of, of, a, of a deep dive and saga in a, in a whole different realm where I immediately began to see the fusion between something that couldn't have been more deeply personal and emotional and the underpinnings of how essential our past investments in scientific research were to her chances. And, and, and it's when you watch the film, I, I think that the, that storyline really plays out. And, and I think you will pick up on exactly what what Alan just talked about. But, Alan, does it make you does it frustrate you, uh, make you angry when you hear people attack science or attack scientists uh, as being self-serving or having agendas when, for the most part, when I talk to people like you, and I, I don't know that we've actually met personally, but I, I certainly know of you and your reputation, and I know all of the other colleagues in Let Science Speak, I know that there's a passion, a, a, a legitimate care about what we're doing. It's not about any of those things. Your daughter you saw the value of scientific research and science progress and technology in your own household. I mean, so that that has to be a little bit frustrating, or is it? It, it is at times. Um, you know, the word I use more often than anything else is sad. I, um, I'm, I'm angry at times. I'm frustrated at times when you see parts of science anyway, coming up against political or economic agendas and deliberate attempts to discredit or fracture that. Um, those who are responsible for that are, are worthy of our anger, I think. Um, the sadness comes more in that it, it, it's effective. And so you see people um, in all walks of life whose own lives are potentially being affected um, and being worsened by that strategy. And, and, and that bums me out. Yeah, I think that's why this Let Science Speak was so important, because as, as I've often said, um, you know, you and I, are, we come from academia and there is a tendency among some of our colleagues, not all, uh, to just want to stay in the ivory tower and publishing in our journals and going to our conferences and science meeting, talking to peers. But if if we're not out there sort of talking about science or talking about its value or even how it's a, a, affecting kitchen table issues, and yours certainly is that and more, uh, there are certainly people with agendas and with ideologies that will fill that gap. And so I, I think we, we have to be there. I mean, what, what do you see? is the role of academics and scholars in this sort of broader science communication? I agree. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and, and you know, 
I mean, you're a terrific example of that, Marshall, one I've actually used in my own classes and talking to my own grad students in the past of that, you know, I, I just think we can't escape um, a responsibility as scientists to do our best to take some of our time to get the word out. Um, that's part of what we do. And, and frankly, you know, for those of us who who get support, whether it's foundations or from from federal agencies, I mean, that's part of it, too. We're, we're, we are quite literally doing our work for the people. And so we should take on the responsibility of helping to share that information. I will say that, you know, I think there's a twofold thing in there when you're talking about the kind of institutions we're part of is that we need to do it as individuals. And then the institutions that support science need to do the things to support that, to have that be part of a of, of their mandated um, mission. I want to I want to play a clip here. Uh, it's a clip about science saving your daughter. Science is, in one sense, I suppose, always been personal for me because it's what I chose to do. I cared about it. Without question, it became personal in a very different way in the last four years now starting with Neva's diagnosis and through everything that's happened since. Since I started becoming a scientist, things have changed a lot. And that's what concerns me. And, you know, when I was first in this, of course, there were debates, there was climate denial, there were all these things, but the tenor of the discussion, the fundamental trust in science, all of those were far better than what I see today. If we don't restore that trust in science, I think we're in real trouble. I watched as science literally changed the lives of my daughter and my wife. I started a scientific path with an interest in medicine. Despite that, started working in a field known as evolutionary biology, and then got interested in research science through a class in ecology. The early stuff I did was trying to understand that as the climate changes, as the temperature goes up, what's that gonna do to all of the carbon that's stuck in the world's soils? Part of that's about looking at questions like, how do we grow our food? And how can we grow our food better? We do it poorly in rich countries, others don't have enough. And so I think more and more about that as a big piece of the puzzle. It's such a fundamental pillar of society. Where I want to put my effort is to take my work and make a difference in people's lives. I met my wife, Diana, here in Colorado. She was a beautiful person in so many ways. She had this very, very rare curiosity with just no ego at all. And then as I came to know her over the years, as a scientist, you know, that those traits are supposed to be at the core of, of how you do science, and it's why she was a terrific scientist. We were in different fields, but ones that were very complementary, and so it's not a surprise that a lot of scientists end up together because there's a shared passion there that translates to the personal. We liked to look at and live life the same way. Our daughter, Neva, was born in 2009. When she was three and kind of coming up on four, started to realize that she didn't seem to be growing and she started to have headaches, which is a bit unusual for a kid. One thing led to another and eventually she had to go have an MRI. 
and that MRI showed that it's a tumor in her pituitary region, and so that was life-changing. We tried to tell her that she has to have brain surgery, and she has no idea what that means. That January, we took a family reunion trip to Costa Rica. Neva was doing fine. Diana was saying that she was having a little bit of trouble with her right hand. It was hurting her a little bit in typing, and she thought it was carpal tunnel syndrome. Neva asked me, does mama have something wrong with her head like I do, and all these questions. Diana's diagnosis was glioblastoma, which is pretty much the worst brain tumor you can get. Um, there are exceptions, but basically nobody lives through one of those, and most people don't live very long. And so that was staggering. The system started to, to shift out, and I was with her the whole time. I sat with her, and you know, she died right there. Diana's buried in a place called Green Mountain Cemetery. The edge of it where she is goes right up against the beginning of the mountains. It helps to know she's right there and helps to know she's where she'd want to be and um, in, a, in a beautiful spot that meant something to her. Diana's deepest wish for us was that we not wallow in her passing forever. What mattered to her was that I was happy, and the same for our daughter. Because I'm a scientist, I could understand even more acutely, through so much emotion, how everything I was seeing was resting on her. Our daughter Neva is in a place now that she hasn't been. She's tumor-free, and these moments of medical intervention are not ever present for her. They're their backdrop to just being a kid. That doesn't happen without this science. It's made it so much more personal for me. It's made it so much more fundamental that I give everything I can to support science. If we do not invest in science the way we need to to support the fabric of all of our lives, we're all gonna face some really challenging times in the future. Science saved my daughter. And, and that was the clip uh, from Let Science Speak. Uh, now, you talk about the clip. You give a personal experience there with this clip about science saving your daughter. But yet part of the reason there was an issue in terms of uh, science and the sort of fake news and the sort of innuendo and narratives that are out there is that people seem to either have a distrust of science or they feel like it may in some way threaten their own liberties. What is your take on this sort of fake news era? We just dealt with Hurricane Florence. And in my community's meteorologists, there were literally people out there saying we were overhyping the storm or it wasn't going to be as bad as it was. When last time I checked, there are 40 plus people that have lost their lives. Three million chicken and turkeys have been uh, drowned, affecting the economy. Um, coal ash and, and, and fecal matter all over the low country. So how did we get here, Alan, where people distrust science or so hostile towards it? Well, you know what's interesting about this one, too, and, and this is where I go back to my experience with my daughter and also my late wife who is in there, is that you don't see in the most part a lot of distrust of, say, the, the science and information behind cancer. It's very difficult, but Nobody would take the results of the MRI scans that suddenly became central in my life 
and distrust that scan. You know, what's not on the table at that point is a do nothing, right? Or a conspiracy theory that that's a fake scan. What's on the table are a bunch of really hard decisions. Um, and that to me clarifies that, really clarified in a personal way that then you look at the kind of things we do around climate or weather and the environment. We have those scans so clearly in the same way, but the reason we don't have the same kind of conversations about what to do is that, you know, I wouldn't say that it, we have this broad-based war on science. We have a surgical one where certain areas have been deliberately attacked precisely to sow these kind of arguments, to create these fractures in our communities um, so that those economic interests are protected. And then you have what you talked about, you know, not only the loss of life in something like Florence, but as you stress so appropriately, far, far greater numbers of people whose lives will be permanently changed who can least afford that yes. um, when we have storms. And and we could do a better job of helping those communities, of being prepared, and and yet we're unable to enough because of those attempts to, to discredit the science. We're talking with Dr. Alan Townsend, Colorado College Provost and Professor of Environmental Science. Now, Alan, what is your research area of specialty for the listeners? What 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 are you up to these days in terms of your own scientific agenda and research? <laughs> well, most days, most of the time these days, I'm I'm helping to run the college, so my time you for are research a provost. Has been, and, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So for anyone that's listening to uh, to the podcast that may not be familiar with academic speak, uh, the provost is essentially the administrator at a university or college that that runs the college. Um, there's a president that I often describe as sort of serving as sort of the high-level figurehead, uh, if you will, CEO, but then the sort of COO, the chief operating officer, is often the provost. Is that an accurate description? I think that's dead on. That's that's pretty much exactly what it is. And so um, a lot of my time is wrapped up on that. And, and I'll talk about that for a moment because it's relevant here. But my research for a long time, um, I'm what's known as an ecosystem ecologist. That's what I got into. But, but what I really focused on was how the kinds of things that people are doing in the world, the way in which they're living, interacts with the systems that surround us and what that means. And so a lot of that was in the context of asking questions as the climate changes, how will the ecosystems around us maybe help us out or maybe make things worse? Um, what are we going to look at in the future? And, and I did a lot of that in rainforests for more than 20 years um, just because they're so important to how the whole climate system and weather systems of the world work. Wow, that, that's interesting. And that's one of the interesting things about climate and climate change. Um, it, it's not about, you know, just the polar bears or things that I think get sort of portrayed sometimes in the broader media. Uh, Every aspect of the Earth's system uh, is integrated into the climate system. There are feedbacks, uh, there are impacts, and so the ecosystem is certainly one of those areas. And so I, I, re I really wanted to kind of dive into that because one of the interesting things about all of the scientists in Let Science Speak is that they are from a, a host of different disciplinary backgrounds. And I thought that was interesting, but it was key to me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Though this movie or this film, which was de debuted at Tribeca TV Festival, uh, the, the score was uh, by a member of Fallout Boy. So uh, though we had all of that access and though this is a movie about scientists, it's not necessarily the films are not about science. Yeah. Uh, react to that statement. No, they're not. And um, that, I think, is one of the really brilliant parts of the film project in the first place. We... 
we are not suffering from a lack of information or facts. Um, I think we are suffering from a situation where, again, some of the really fractured dialogue we have in this country now, the deliberate attempts to split apart our communities, to um, make us forget that we're far more alike than we are different, part of that results in caricatures of science that aren't accurate, that forget that these are people just like everybody else that pay their mortgages and live down the street and have the same concerns and are in it to try to, you know, not because of the polar bear on the receding ice sheet, but because of the people who are next door. And, and so the films are, are trying to show that again and remind people again that um, this is a time when we have the information to do something. We just need to remember to come together and remember that those who are working in it are, are doing it because they care about those communities, not because they have some agenda. And uh, that, that's the central theme to me. That's a great point. I just saw an article this morning that I tweeted talking about, I, I think it was a, a stormwater management system in Europe that if it were in place in the Carolina coastal areas might have uh, mitigated some of the, the damage and disaster that we've seen there. Um, and and yet we're still posturing here in this country, sort of debating the issues where many other countries are moving to save their citizens' lives. So in this last last moment, uh, you know, I've got a minute or so, what do you think about where we need to head next? Is it, I know there's some questions about funding, about the sort of political sort of posturing of science in general. What are the next steps here for us to really move this thing forward? You know, it's it, this is going to sound like almost a cliched statement, but I've come to really believe it. And, and that is that I think at the heart of a lot of our problems is that we we are growing apart as communities in this country. We are retreating into our echo chamber, chambers. And so whether it's other social issues, whether it's climate, really putting the effort into bringing us back together and to regaining trust and to working better as communities is the, is the foundation from which we can take those next steps. And, and that's about people rising up, voting the way that they want to have the outcome they want, working better to remember that we, we really can trust each other and work together. And, and, and I really believe people are capable of it, right? I mean, you look in history, when, when push comes to shove, humanity is capable of some incredible things pretty quickly. And that's where a lot of my hope on this issue comes from. Is most of the uncertainty still lies in front of us around our own choices. And if we can, if we can remember that we're capable of working together well across a lot of lines, I still think there's a lot we can do. And that's where we start. And that's where we'll we'll end it today. You can go to LetScienceSpeak.com to learn more about the film and the scientists involved. Alan, where can they find you on social media? Well, mostly I'm on Twitter, and that's Alan underscore Townsend, at Alan underscore Townsend. Um, and you can also find me through various web pages at Colorado College. Um, I also do some writing on a, on a website called StateFactors.org. There you go. Thank you so much for joining us on Weather Geeks. Uh, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and be sure to check out Let Science Speak. Thanks again, Alan. Thanks, Marshall.